0: This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service featuring more than 5,000 lectures taught by award-winning professors and experts. To begin your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com people. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we take a close look at the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which states, quote, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. It's that last clause, the idea of cruel and unusual punishment, that's the crux of this discussion. Since 1976, when the Supreme Court held in Gregg v. Georgia that the death penalty does not violate the Eighth Amendment in all circumstances, states have executed about 1,400 inmates, uh, and currently 31 states allow the death penalty. Uh, But a recent series of controversial executions and exonerations, as well as uh, an important uh, dissenting opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer, have raised new questions about the constitutionality of capital punishment. So here's what we're talking about today. Does the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause prohibit the death penalty? If not, are some modern methods of execution barbaric enough to violate the clause? What standard should the court use to determine if a punishment is cruel and unusual? Joining me to answer these questions and to discuss other recent news about the Eighth Amendment and the death penalty are two of America's leading experts in constitutional law. John Stineford is professor of law and assistant director of the Criminal Justice Center at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. He worked with Brian Stevenson of NYU Law School and the Equal Justice Initiative to write about the Eighth Amendment for the National Constitution Center's wonderful new interactive constitution. And Elizabeth Wydra, our returning champion, is chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. She is also a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, which is supervising the interactive constitution. John, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here.
1: Great to be with you, Jeff. Yes, thanks so much.
0: So glad you're here. So, John, you wrote with Brian this really interesting explainer about the Eighth Amendment, which I want our listeners to go check out, constitutioncenter.org backslash interactive constitution. And you began by talking about what each of you agreed about the original meaning uh, and core purpose of the Eighth Amendment. Can you tell us what you and Brian agreed about? Sure,
1: absolutely. So um, if you look at the history surrounding the Eighth Amendment, um, you'll find that actually about 100 years before the American Bill of Rights was adopted, um, we see the same provisions being put into what's called the English Bill of Rights. This was um, a law that was uh, adopted in England um, to constrain the power of the sovereign, and it, it included a prohibition of cruel and unusual punishments, as well as prohibitions of excessive bail and excessive fines. Um, so the language from the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause comes originally from the English Bill of Rights. Um, it was picked up uh, in 1776 by a number of state constitutions when they were first adopted, um, and it ultimately ended up in the Bill of Rights in the United States um, Constitution. Now, the sort of the immediate cause of uh, the inclusion of this provision in the Bill of Rights Um, was the fact that when we moved from the Articles of Confederation, which involves a very weak federal government, um, to the new federal constitution, um, the federal government had a lot of enormous new powers. Um, And one of the most important of these powers was the power to um, create criminal laws and to inflict punishment directly on individual citizens. Um, Prior to this time, this was a power that only belonged to state governments. Um, And there was a lot of concern among... um, the people in charge of ratifying the Constitution, um, that the new federal government might use this power to impose criminal punishment as a way of oppressing the people. Um, There were concerns, of course, that the federal government was farther away from the people than state governments, um, and um, it was not bound by traditional standards, like traditional common law standards. Um, And so there are a lot of—if you read the ratification debates, you'll see a lot of um, the anti-federalists in particular— Um, speculating that the new government might adopt uh, the practices of the Spanish Inquisition, for example, um, and start torturing criminal offenders, um, either as a way of getting evidence from them or to punish them uh, for for crime. Um, And so the Eighth Amendment, uh, and particularly the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishments, uh, was added, uh, at least in part, uh, to constrain Congress's ability to impose um, unduly harsh punishments on criminal offenders.
0: Thank you for that wonderful summary. You do say that the fear that Congress might introduce the practice of the Spanish Inquisition was at the center of the original understanding. It sounds like a Monty Python routine, uh, but then you <laughs> go on to identify, after you know, agreeing on this fascinating history, to identify a series of what you call many areas of passionate disagreement concerning the meaning and application of the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. And I'm just going to list. Uh, uh, four of those, and then ask Elizabeth what she thinks about those areas of disagreement. The areas of disagreement you talked about are first and foremost, what standards should the court use in deciding whether a punishment is unconstitutionally cruel? Should we look to 1791 or contemporary standards? Second, does the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause only prohibit barbaric punishment, or does it also prohibit disproportionate punishments? Third, does it prohibit the death penalty? And finally, are some modern methods of punishment like solitary confinement or the three-drug cocktail to execute offenders sufficiently barbaric to violate the Eighth Amendment? Elizabeth, there's lots in there, but do you want to take a stab at some of those questions?
2: I mean, as you just listed, it's clear that there are so many issues involving the Eighth Amendment that are live and active today. You know, this is not some... um, part of the Constitution that is not directly relevant. I mean, all of these things are being hotly debated today. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the Eighth Amendment, um, I am a progressive originalist, so I don't, I'm do not i not one of those uh, folks who think that we should disregard the original text and meaning of the Constitution. And one thing that is unique about the Eighth Amendment is that it explicitly in the text sort of contemplates its own evolution by talking about Cool and unusual punishment, which I think is really interesting. And I, you know, Brian Stevenson does a great job in your interactive Constitution part of uh, that deals with the Eighth Amendment by starting out noting that. You know, at the time of the founding, one of our most celebrated and indeed celebrated hotly on Broadway right now and, you know, one of the hippest musicals on Broadway right now in Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton was killed at a duel with Aaron Burr. Dueling was a very common sort of way of settling disputes. But certainly that's not something that we would consider now to be an appropriate way of settling disputes. So certain things can change. And, you know, more specific to the Eighth Amendment, you know, Blackstone talks about dismemberment, Um, or mutilation as a punishment for a crime. Obviously, we would not today consider those to be appropriate punishments, uh, regardless of the severity of the crime committed. So the Constitution's language itself contemplates change. And the Supreme Court has said that we don't look to um, the standards that were used in uh, English common law, or even at the time of the Bill of Rights passage, but look to common standards. And so that's where we get into some of these very difficult questions about uh, whether the capital punishment system is too arbitrary. Justice Breyer wrote very eloquently about the arbitrariness of the way that the capital punishment system is uh, implemented in the United States. Stephen Bright, a legend in the public interest bar, has said that um, the death penalty is imposed not upon those who commit the worst crimes, but upon those who have the misfortune to be assigned the worst lawyers. Is that really the way that we want uh, something as significant as capital punishment to be needed out in the United States under our constitutional system? And I think this idea of whether the three-drug cocktail that's used by most states, whether that counts as cruel, and some of the reasons uh, for deciding it might be cruel have to do with changes in our understanding of medicine and science. And so should we forget um, the progress that is given to us by being able to decide that oh, hey, actually, this first drug that is used in the cocktail that is supposed to render the prisoner um, insensitive to pain, if that doesn't actually work, should we ignore that simply because capital punishment was something that was allowed at the time of the founding? I don't think so. So I think these questions are very interesting to debate, in part because the Constitution itself wants us to continue debating those by talking about cruel and unusual punishments.
0: Thank you for that thoughtful response and for focusing on the word unusual. John, in your separate explainer for matters of debate, uh, you agree that that word is important. You say my own research into the original meaning of the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause show that Justices Scalia and Thomas, uh, their approach has a fatal flaw in ignoring the meaning of the word unusual. Tell us more about their approach and how you think that a focus on the word unusual uh, leads to a better interpretation.
1: Sure, absolutely. And by the way, I do need to respond, at least in part, uh, uh, to the last statement, in that I I was actually a little surprised that Brian uh, used dueling as an example of changing societal standards because dueling was illegal at the time um, the the Constitution was adopted, and it had been illegal for many years. Now, people engaged in dueling, um, but it was also criminally punished. So I'm not sure that the current thinking about dueling really... Um, says much about about um, the evolution of societal standards, um, but I do think it's it's really important. And, and by the way, I do think there is an evolutionary component um, to the cruel and unusual punishments clause, but it's not. Um, it doesn't work in the way that um, that many contemporary progressives argue um, that it should work. Um, and so, but but let me start by kind of raising a question, which is. You know, how do we figure out whether a given punishment is unconstitutionally cruel? That is, how do we figure out whether it's so harsh that the government should not be permitted uh, to impose it? Um, This is not an easy question to answer, uh, because the very purpose of punishment is to inflict pain on people. So we've got to figure out, well, where's the line between pain that's constitutionally acceptable and pain that uh, goes too far, right? Um, and there's a couple of different sort of ways one could define the line. And if you look at the way the sort of the current court breaks down, uh, you'll see, you know, Justice Scalia tries to t- take a bright line rule and say, well, if it was okay in 1791, then it must be okay today. That's my bright line rule: the standards of 1791. Uh, now, of course, the problem with that, uh, as a as a matter of workability, is that in 1791 there were certain punishment practices. Um, such as bodily mutilation, branding, flogging, etc., that are completely inconsistent with current societal standards. And Justice Scalia himself at one point, when he was first on the court, um, called himself a faint-hearted originalist, and he admitted that he himself couldn't uphold punishments like that if someone tried to bring them back. Um, of course, now he's less faint-hearted than he used to be, and he says, well, I would uphold it. Um, I'd say it was dumb, but constitutional. Um, so, but his standard relies on on what what we might think of as the outmoded standards of the past. Um, the evolving standards of decency test, on the other hand, um, which is the test that Elizabeth was was simply was propounding a moment ago, says, well, we don't look to the standards of 1791. We should look to the standards of today. What are our current societal standards, and does this punishment still meet our current societal standards? Um, now, there's a lot of problems with that. A particular approach to the Constitution, um, not the least of which is the fact that by the time any case gets up to the Supreme Court, the punishment will have been approved by at least one legislature, imposed by at least one jury, often approved by many legislatures and imposed by many juries. Um, and so how could we ever say that a punishment with such approval violates current standards of decency? How, how can the court get the data to justify um, such a conclusion? Um, but even beyond that, conceptually, there's a problem with the evolving standards of decency test, which is that it relies on current public opinion. That is, it says whenever public opinion turns in favor of criminal offenders, um, whenever public, the public is more kindly disposed toward criminal offenders, so too is the Eighth Amendment. Um, but, of course, the assumption underlying that is that public opinion always turns in a more lenient direction over time. Um, But anyone familiar with the last 40 years of criminal punishment history knows that, in fact, public opinion very often turns in the direction of greater harshness or cruelty. Um, So, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had panics about crime uh, rates generally. In the 80s, there were panics about drug offenders. In the 90s, it was juvenile super predators. Um, Today, it's sex offenders. Um, And anytime there's a public panic about some type of crime, Legislatures respond by ratcheting up punishments to new and unprecedented levels of harshness, um, which is one of the reasons we have uh, 2.25 million people in prison today, whereas we only had about 300,000 in prison in 1970. Um, So, But if the court's looking to current standards, right, what does the public currently think about criminal punishment? Well, at any given moment in time, if the public is caught up in a panic so that the public approves of cruel punishment, the evolving standards of decency test um, should get in the way of the courts striking that punishment down. Um, So the the notion that individual rights should rely on current public opinion strikes me as profoundly backward. Um, Now, how does the word unusual actually work in practice? Um, First of all, uh, it's important to understand the word unusual did not originally mean rare or uncommon. Um, It actually was a common law term of art. It meant contrary to long Usage, And the basic idea was this, sort of how do we figure out whether a given governmental practice is reasonable and just and enjoys the consent of the people? Um, You know, again, the notion of of identifying a certain moment in time, um, as the current approaches to the Eighth Amendment uh, do, is not a very reliable way of figuring out whether something is truly just and reasonable, because at any given moment in time, our standards might be off a little bit. So Unusual says, well, what we do is we look to the standards that enjoy long usage. What practices have been used for a very long period of time up to and including today? Um, And if society has continued to use practices over a very long period of time, this is evidence of a multi-generational consensus in favor of those practices, and they set the baseline for reasonableness. It's not public opinion today not public opinion in 1791, but rather public opinion over a very long period of time is thought to be much more reliable as a constitutional standard. Um, Now, that includes a principle of evolution in it in the sense that when a given practice falls out of usage for a very long period of time, uh, common law thinkers would say this is no longer part of our usage. And so if the government tries to bring it back, it would be considered unusual. It would be treated like a new punishment. Even though it was once used, it did not stand the test of time. If you bring it back today, it's now unusual. So again, if you think about those practices from 1790, such as flogging and branding and bodily mutilation, those practices thought of usage such a long time ago that if the legislature were to try and bring them back today, they would now be contrary to long usage and thus unconstitutional.
0: Thank you very much for that comprehensive and thoughtful suggestion for how to interpret the Eighth Amendment. Elizabeth, what do you think of John's suggestion that the right benchmark for the Eighth Amendment is longstanding prior practice? The death penalty in general is constitutional because it's still been in long usage, but certain forms of the death penalty, like executing people for theft, are not because they're now unusual.
2: Right. You know, I think, you know, first of all, looking to the Supreme Court, you know, the idea that it's the current standards. Um, current prevailing standards that are used to judge whether a punishment is cruel and unusual. You know, I didn't make that up. That's from the Supreme Court. Um, You can look at Atkins versus Virginia from 2002, which makes that clear. Um, But it's a little bit, I think, oversimplifying to say that it's public opinion. You know, the Supreme Court, when they're saying that it's those standards that currently prevail, I don't think Um, they are advocating taking a public opinion, a poll, and going with whatever the public says on that particular day. I think it is much more, um, I think there's probably less disagreement um, uh, in terms of what the standards are and, you know, being something that has continued to be in use, um, that sort of common law standard, I don't think is totally out of step with the Supreme Court's uh, adoption of current prevailing standards as as the benchmark, but I think you know when we look at the way that the court has recently limited capital punishment, I think that's another way that we can understand better what standards are used. So when you see the court limiting capital punishment and excluding it in situations where, for example, an individual um, uh, has a certain i q that is too low to fit within, again, the common law idea that a person needs to be able to understand the consequences of their action in order to be subjected to certain substantial punishments. That's something that the court has recently said, when they've said that juveniles should not be subject to the death penalty. Again, something that is both related to the usage of that crime, but also to an evolving sense in our society, That's just, that that is just something that we do not do, um, that is not something that we as a society now condone in the same way that we don't condone, um, you know, punishments that were common in, uh, you know, under the English common law in the years before the founding, you know, cutting off someone's ears if they engage in political pamphleteering. That's certainly not something that our founders uh, would have wanted to incorporate into the Eighth Amendment. So I think it's important to look at the way that the court has very conservatively, I think, cut back on areas in which the death penalty is appropriate and then also look at other situations where we are simply learning more about the way that um, our criminal justice system is actually um, practiced. And I think the solitary confinement question is actually a really good example of this. Justice Kennedy pointed out in one of his concurring opinions toward the end of last term that we know a lot more about the way that solitary confinement uh, how people react when they are subject to solitary confinement that it can literally make men go mad And so I think trying to say that we should ignore the benefits of progress when it comes to learning about the ways that um, uh, People react to certain punishments is, is something that is not uh, required by the Constitution And In fact, if we want our criminal justice system to indeed be just is something that we should
0: embrace uh, Thanks so much for that I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It has unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more. Taught by award-winning professors and experts, with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. My listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus, free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free, for one month. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Sign up now for your free one-month trial go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. Uh, John, let's now turn to the debates on the current Supreme Court. Uh, Adam Liptak recently reported in the New York Times that death penalty advocates are split about whether or not to accept Justice Stephen Breyer's invitation in the gossip uh, opinion last term to ask the court to hold the entire death penalty to be unconstitutional, because they don't know whether or not they have the votes. In that case, Justice Breyer said that the administration of the death penalty involves three fundamental constitutional defects, first, serious unreliability, second, arbitrariness in application, and third, unconscionably long delays that undermine its uh, penological purposes. What do you think of Justice Breyer's argument, and is there a constituency on the court for your approach which would focus on whether or not a particular punishment is the subject of longstanding practice?
1: Um, well, thanks for the question. Uh, it's a great question. Um, first of all, I, I should point out when it comes to Justice Breyer's opinion, which was joined by Justice Ginsburg, this really falls into a line of Eighth Amendment cases that you could call um, Eighth Amendment due process cases. Uh, that is to say, um, you know, back in the early 70s in a case versus a case called MacGotha versus Maryland, um, the petitioner tried to argue that the death penalty violated um, the due process clause because of various um, uh, procedural problems that led to arbitrary results in terms of who gets the death penalty, et cetera, and so forth. And the Supreme Court in that case said, well, no, the due process clause does not prohibit that. Um, but then a couple of years later in Furman versus Georgia, um, the court revived this due process idea, but now as a sort of subset of, of Eighth Amendment cases. So when we think about um, an opinion like Justice Breyer's and Ginsburg's here, the opinion's not really about whether the death penalty is itself cruel and unusual that is they're not saying that it's objectively too harsh for any crime or for certain crimes or anything like that. They're saying even assuming that the death penalty is justified um, for certain crimes, nonetheless, there are procedural defects that are so serious and that can't be cured, and therefore it should be eliminated for for those reasons in particular. Justices Breyer and Ginsburg um, you know, rely on uh, questions about the reliability of convictions in death penalty cases, the, the concern that we might convict innocent people. Um, arbitrariness, that is, uh, certain people um, get chosen for the death penalty, others do not. The, the differentiating lines often seem to be arbitrary um, and also often seem to have a strong racial overcast uh, to them, which is very troubling. Um, and also, there's a there's, uh, very long delay after people get sentenced to death. Very often they could spend um, decades uh, on death row before they're um, executed. Um, and so that. So, so they're working in that sort of line of cases, the due process line of cases. And, and again, the basic argument is that there, there is no procedural cure that can fix these problems, and so the only cure is to eliminate um, the death penalty. Um, so, again, I think it's a very separate kind of analysis from the question of whether, in fact, a punishment – assuming the procedures were reliable and non-arbitrary and the delays were not lengthy, um, would be acceptable. Um, Now, regarding whether there's any constituency on the court for my argument about the original meaning of the word unusual, um, up to this point, no. I've actually been cited by one Supreme Court justice. um, That was Justice Stevens after he left the court, um, unfortunately for me, I guess. Um, So I'm not sure um, whether they will go there. Um, I do think that um, if the court is ever going to engage in any real substantive review of lengthy prison sentences, um, solitary confinement, other forms of punishment that that sort of fall below the level of, of death, they may need to find a new standard other than the one they're using. Their current standard is actually designed to exclude virtually all categories of case except the death penalty, Um, and life imprisonment for juveniles um, from any substantive um, reviews. Perhaps they'll they'll take a closer look when when, and if they decide to turn to prison sentences. Um, But for now, I don't see any movement in that direction.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for that. Elizabeth, what do you think of Justice Breyer's uh, approach, which uh, John called a kind of due process approach? Uh, Justice Ginsburg joined it. Um, Is there any prospect for any other justices uh, joining it? And what are the futures for a total ban on the death penalty?
2: I think Justice Breyer's dissent in the Glossop case was extremely interesting for a multitude of reasons. I mean, first, if you think about the signal that Justice Breyer might be sending with that dissent, it's true that only Justice Ginsburg joined him. But Justice Breyer certainly knows his colleagues and has to be aware that writing a dissent saying that he is open to a reconsideration of the death penalty's constitutionality um, as a fundamental issue that certainly is going to send a uh, message to advocates that they should bring a case. You know, we, we, again, when we saw Justice Kennedy's dissent noting that the solitary confinement might be unconstitutional, people take that as a signal that they that the justices are open to getting such a case. So even though only two justices signed on to that, you know, it, it certainly does send a signal that there might be a constituency on that court. And I think that Justice Kennedy's acknowledgement of Some of the flaws in the criminal justice system, which we've seen both in his writings for the court and in some of his comments outside of the court, suggest that he might be open to this sort of due process type of argument that Justice Breyer is making, which is not sort of an originalist type of argument that capital punishment is never acceptable. Um, You know, you might run into some issues with the grand jury clause that does talk about federal cases involving a capital um, crime, um, but instead is sort of, even if capital punishment might be acceptable in the Constitution, we do not have a system in which it can be constitutionally executed. And so I think that that's a really um, powerful argument to be made. And it also incorporates a whole host of other issues that are incredibly important to a properly functioning justice system. You know, Talking about issues of equality. If we see that the death penalty is implemented in a way that impacts people of color more, then that's something that is certainly not in line with our guarantees of equality and uh, justice for all, regardless of race. And so when we look at some of these much larger issues that are put into the death penalty context, again, something about um, whether you can afford to have good lawyers or not, or whether the state assigns you good lawyers or not, that's not something that should where life or death should turn on, you know, whether you can afford to hire a good lawyer or whether the luck of the draw on the state public defender system gives you adequate counsel or not. So there are a whole host of important constitutional issues that are wrapped up in this, and Justice Breyer does a great job of bringing all this in in his very long dissent. And I think another signal that this might be something that is a real possibility on the court is the vehement opposition that we saw. From some of the conservative justices who strongly support the death penalty system, Justice Scalia and Thomas, for example. I don't think I can recall another example where when the decisions were being read from the bench, um, so when we, the Glossop opinions were being read from the bench on the last day of the term uh, last year, the majority opinion was read by Justice Alito, Justice Breyer read his dissent, and then Justice Scalia read his concurring opinion as a response to Justice Breyer's dissent. It was, you know, typical Scalia, very fiery, very inflammatory. But I think that showed the heat that we see on this issue in the court. And Justice Scalia has even said in comments over the summer that he thinks it is a possibility that the Supreme Court could do away with capital punishment, even if he himself might uh, not support that.
0: John, what do you make of Justice Scalia's very interesting comment, which Elizabeth uh, calls our attention to, If you were counting the votes, what do you think Scalia is imagining? Is is this Kennedy plus the four liberals? What's the scenario under which the court could declare the death penalty to be unconstitutional?
1: Right. Well, you know, it's always speculation. Um, And and I should say um, uh, it it does appear, and I I don't know Justice Scalia personally, but sometimes his temperament can be his own worst enemy in terms of um, his public statement. So it's not clear that his statement— actually has any predictive force about what the court will do. It's just not clear at all. Um, but if it does have any, have any predictive force, I think I think it's fair to say, I mean, Justices Breyer and Ginsburg have indicated um, a general willingness to do away with the death penalty. Um, Justice so- Justices Sotomayor and Kagan are very concerned about the death penalty. It's very clear from their opinions in Glossop versus Gross. They're very concerned about it, um, in part because the methods that we use, and particularly lethal injection, are very problematic for a whole host of reasons. And I say that, by the way, from an originalist point of view. Um, there is no sense in which um, these are somehow uh, less troubling to me as a constitutional matter than than to anyone else. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that in a minute if you want to. But they're very concerned about this, that, that there's a great risk that, that um, this method of execution will lead to botched executions, which could result in essentially death by torture, Um, and if, in fact, there seems to be no way around that procedure, again, I could see them voting in favor of eliminating the death penalty based on their public statements um, in Gossip versus Gross, and of course, that leaves us with Justice Kennedy, um, as is so often the case, um, as as kind of the wild card in this case. Now, he has voted to uphold the death penalty. Um, on various occasions, but he has also voted to limit the death penalty on various occasions. And so um, it's not hard to imagine Justice Kennedy swinging over the other way and voting with the four liberals to eliminate um, the death penalty. But I, I don't, there's nothing certainly in, in what he said or did during Glossop versus Gross which indicates that he's likely to do that, um, but we don't know what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Great. Okay. Uh, Let us talk about some of the cases that the court has agreed to hear this year. Uh, Just on uh, November 2nd, the court heard a case, Foster and Chapman. I know you've been following Elizabeth, involving the question of whether Georgia erred in failing to recognize race discrimination under Batson versus Kentucky in the extraordinary circumstances of this death penalty case. Without getting too much into the weeds, give us a sense of the basic constitutional issues that are at stake here, and then what else we can look for on the cases that are coming before the court this term.
2: Sure. So, the case that was argued about um, race discrimination in jury selection, especially in jury cases that deal with the imposition of the death penalty, is a really important case in the line of jurisprudence stemming from a case called Batson versus Kentucky. And in Batson, the court said that when lawyers are excluding jurors from uh, the jury pool, they can't do so for racially discriminatory reasons. And there are generally two ways in which you can exclude a juror. You can exclude a juror for cause. For example, if a juror said, I will never under any circumstances impose the death penalty, the prosecution could say we have reason to exclude this juror. But then there are also what are called peremptory challenges, and these can be for something as, you know, the juror looked bored, or I didn't like the juror's attitude, she seemed hostile. Um, And these peremptory challenges are where it becomes very difficult to show that a lawyer is acting based on racial discriminatory reasons and not just one of these more, uh, you know, sort of illusory kind of, you know, arguments for why this juror is not appropriate to serve in the pool. Um, but the case that's being argued for the court this term is very interesting because we actually have the notes from the prosecution. And as Stephen Bright, the lawyer for um, uh, the uh, criminal defendant in this case, said, you know, there aren't, there's an arsenal of smoking guns in this case, because the prosecution's notes um, describe all of the black jurors um, specifically in terms of race. They uh, label them B number one, B number two, and talk about if they had to have a black juror, which one might be most acceptable. So if this case doesn't show that the prosecutors were acting with racial discrimination when they excluded these jurors, um, then it's hard to think of a case that would meet the standard um, for showing race discrimination when using a peremptory challenge to get rid of a juror. But I think what's interesting in, in that case, as well as the other death penalty cases that the court has already heard argument in, um, we were all wondering after the drama of the GLOSSIP exchange whether Justice Breyer or Justice Ginsburg might use these cases that are being heard this year, um, which have to do with sort of the way in which the death penalty is implemented. So whether the jury can recommend death if it's a non-unanimous jury or whether mitigating circumstances need to be affirmatively instructed that they don't have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt whether Justice Breyer and Ginsburg would use these cases to sort of make a grand statement about the constitutionality of the death penalty in general. And we didn't really see that, at least not in the arguments thus far. Maybe the opinions will feature that. But, you know, in in the famous words um, of one of our earlier justices about tinkering with the machinery of death, it seems at least at this point that they might be willing to continue tinkering um, because they didn't use those arguments as sort of a forum for making grand statements. Again, that's not really these justices' style, so it wasn't terribly surprising, but it does seem as if we're going to continue to see cases before the Supreme Court that deal with some of these more mechanical issues of the way the capital punishment system works um, before we get to this much more foundational question of whether the death penalty itself can ever be constitutional, at least in the way that our justice system works right now.
0: Thanks so much for that. Uh, John, do you agree with Elizabeth, first of all, that if anything violates the Batson requirements that uh, you can't strike purely on the basis of race that this case Foster versus Chapman does? And also, uh, what do you think of her broader interesting claim that this term, unlike last term, is likely to involve cases that Tinker with the mechanics of the death penalty more than addressing the underlying constitutional issues.
1: Right. Well, first of all, I, I, based on what I, my limited knowledge of Foster versus Chapman, I do agree that uh, it's, it's. In fact, if you if you look at pictures of the the prosecutors' notes, it's even more shocking than to hear them described. It, it appears very uh, explicit that they were they were very much focused on the race of these jurors. So it does look like a Batson violation. Now prosecutors have made the argument that, well, we were worried about their race simply because Batson had been decided just before we selected this jury, and so we wanted to make sure that we had racially neutral explanations for these jurors, et cetera, and so we weren't discriminating against them. We were just protecting ourselves against the Batson violation. Um, I'm not sure whether there's any uh, sort of inherent um, persuasiveness in that argument, but, but it appears during oral arguments some of the justices asked the question, well, has anyone prior to this case's appearance in the Supreme Court previously made this argument that prosecutors were trying to avoid a Batson problem? And the answer was no. This appears to be a newly constructed defense of what the prosecutors did uh, in this case, which, uh, and if that's the case, it seems uh, for me hard to see um, how the state will win, um, which is interesting because Batson is often criticized as a very toothless doctrine, um, but this may be actually a case where it has some Now, it had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get any teeth, but it may actually have some um, in this case. Um, Now, Concerning uh, the current cases before the court and the ultimate fate of the death penalty, um, I do tend to agree with Elizabeth that these are, again, these are procedural cases. They all fall on that sort of of due process Eighth Amendment side of the line, and so it's relatively unlikely that we will get holdings from the court um, directly outlawing the death penalty. Um, But I should point out that, in in a sense, the due process line of cases has served as kind of the battlefield for a proxy war about the death penalty, Um, that is, um, to the extent that the Supreme Court adds new procedures that are required before the death penalty can be imposed um, and thus make it more difficult uh, to actually get a valid conviction in a death penalty case. the court makes it harder to impose the death penalty, and and that ends up discouraging states from executing people. Um, So I think you can see, you know, there's been a real decline in the numbers of uh, executions over the years, and at least part of that has been because um, it's just so hard to execute people. Um, So one could think of these procedural cases as a kind of... um, uh again it's being part of kind of a proxy war on the death penalty um and it's very clear that certain justices like Justice Alito and Justice Scalia in particular um believe that um that that 's exactly what 's happening that there 's a proxy war going on um and they try to they've been trying to take steps to uh engage in that proxy warfare on on their own um and that 's one of the reasons we've seen some strange statements coming. Uh, from both of those justices uh, in the most recent case of Glossop v. Gross.
0: Thanks so much for that. It's time for closing arguments, and I'm, uh, we can keep them brief. Um, uh, as I mentioned, Adam Liptak said that death penalty opponents are divided about whether or not to bring a major challenge to the constitutionality of capital punishment to the death to, to, to the Supreme Court. Uh, some say that it's imperative to bring a major case as soon as possible, Others worry that there could be a losing decision that could entrench capital punishment for years. Uh, Elizabeth, if you were advising these death penalty opponents, how would you advise them?
1: Well,
2: I think that the movement uh, in the country is clear in terms of recognizing that the capital punishment system that we currently have is deeply problematic. We have 19 states in the District of Columbia having abolished the death penalty entirely. Um, Death penalty... um, You know, the actual execution of the death penalty has been reduced. Um, Last year, only seven states carried out executions. And so I think that the Supreme Court, um, in this case, might be following the public opinion, recognizing that there are deeply problematic aspects of the capital punishment system that have to do with race, that have to do with socioeconomics. And it just is a system that is very arbitrary, as Justice Breyer made clear in his dissenting opinion in Glossop, and when you're talking about something that is literally life or death, that is just something that is not consistent with the idea of justice in a criminal justice system.
0: Thanks so much for that, Elizabeth. John, last word for you. I know you are not an opponent of the constitutionality of the death penalty in all circumstances, but if you were advising as a strategic matter these death penalty opponents... Would you advise them to bring a major challenge to capital punishment now or not?
1: Right. and I should say I'm personally against the death penalty, actually. I'd love to see it go away. Um, I don't think it's unconstitutional at this point, um, but I, I would love to see it go away. Um, I, I have to disagree slightly with Elizabeth about public opinion. Um, I believe the latest public opinion poll on the death penalty showed something like 62 percent of Americans support the death penalty, at least for crimes like murder. Um, So to the extent the court's thinking of getting rid of it, it's not following public opinion. It's it's essentially doing what it thinks is right based on its own, I think, notions of what's right. Um, In terms of strategy, um, I don't see any downside, frankly, uh, to bringing a a death penalty um, argument uh, this time around because I don't think there's ever anything entrenched about Supreme Court precedent in this area. Um, If the court upholds the death death penalty today it may very well strike it down um, tomorrow. And, for for example, if you look at some uh, relatively recent history, um, in the late 80s, the court upheld the death penalty for the mentally disabled and for minors, and then 15 years later it struck down the death penalty for those very same uh, groups. So if there's a realistic chance that you'll get five votes, and and if if your concern is the death penalty, um, then I, I don't see any strategic reason not to challenge it now.
0: Thank you so much, John Stineford and Elizabeth Weidreff, for an illuminating, civil, and provocative discussion about the Eighth Amendment. Please check out the discussion of the Eighth Amendment on the Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution. And John, Elizabeth, thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks so much.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Constitution CDR, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org, or email me, Rosen, at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.